3: Late lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drahda Dundalk and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website. BlackstoneMotors.ie Stay safe from Blackstone Motors.
4: Welcome to late lunch. Hope you had a lovely weekend. Wasn't the weather just fantastic? It makes all the difference, doesn't it? And of course, we're just past the equinox now. We have more light than darkness in our day which is fantastic and of course the clocks are changing next weekend so we'll have a lot to look forward to and boy do we need things to look forward to at this uh, juncture my oh my when I see the numbers yesterday of cases going up again and all the talk today. Well, look, we're going to talk about this in a moment's time, but welcome to the show once more, just to let you know what's coming up later. Aina Nielone is with us. Ah, oh, she's brilliant. Yes, it's National Tree Week, and you and I can help. We really, really can. Aina's with us after three today. My artist of the week, you'll enjoy him. He's an Irish Legend. Sinead Kelly is here, a vet. If you have a question for Sinead, don't forget the numbers 086 1800 658. WhatsApp or text me now, or you can call in on 1850 And we'll be reflecting on 20 years ago, this very day, when a case of foot and mouth disease was uh, diagnosed. In North Loud, The first time in 60 years there had been a case in the Republic of Ireland and it was a major, major story. Paul Maguire, a former presenter of Loose Talk, is joining me on the show and we're going to hear from a young lady who was presented with a lamb all those years ago in the aftermath of Foot and Mouth. But we begin today, yes, he's one of our foremost experts in mental health. He's assisted so many through his work as a doctor, author, commentator, and speaker, and he's prominent in media circles. And he's been a very good friend to us here on LMFM Radio over the years. I'm delighted to say hello again to Dr. Harry Barry. Hello, Harry.
3: Hello, Jerry. Lovely to lovely to be with you again. And I, I loved hearing you talk about the, you know, the time changing, and you can see the birds in the gardens now, and the, and the buds coming on the trees, and the flowers, and the bulbs, and you know there is hope coming jerry and i think mm. we need to talk about hope a lot mm.
4: oh know, harry and... I, I i say that i say that on purpose and i it really was as a lead into yourself because i knew you'd pick up on it because harry we're exhausted we're beaten down we see no light again today what how can we keep going is it with things like you've just mentioned and alluded to there
3: Yes, I, I think, you know, firstly, I couldn't agree more. I think we're all suffering from, my, my definition of it is burnout or toxic stress. And that's when we've been under the cosh, really, for a very long period of time. And we're pumping out piles of cortisol in, in our brain and our bodies. And we, we find ourselves becoming just totally tired all the time, very demotivated, very listless, um, feeling very hopeless a lot of the time feeling uh, uh, it's, it's like as if joy has been sucked out of our lives and mm-hmm. and we're, we're missing that social contact with each other and you know we, we I I think probably if I had real criticism at the moment it would be that I think the the the, the messaging is is too negative do you know what I mean yes. i know negative i know messages have to be realistic and i think we as a society have to face up to the realities that you know, unless we, 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 we keep doing what we're doing, we are going to, unfortunately, slip backwards. But I, I still think we need to have messages of hope, messages of positivity. And instead of, you know, saying all the things that could possibly go wrong, I think we need to start looking at what are the more likely things that are going to go right. In other words, we need to turn the way we look at it. There's a great line in in life, Jerry is it's not how we look at things, or it's not things that cause us distress in life, it's how we look at them, how we interpret them. And the only way we're going to get, you know, the only way we're going to kind of lift ourselves out of the abyss that we're all in at the moment is we have to start looking for looking for the positive, looking for the good things. Uh, and there is no doubt that we're heading into, thankfully, a wonderful time of the year when the spring is coming and the light is coming back and the hours are getting longer and we can get out of the house more and get out into the fresh air, get out into the garden, get out into our parks, get down to if we can to the sea at all. You know, to to try to kind of and the mother nature is a wonderful uh, you know, salvager at times like this and we and we need to embrace her uh, with open
4: arms. Uh, lovely words and very important to do, as uh, Dr. Harry Barry says there. Just as an aside, before we get on to the main point, you're going to talk to me, I know now, about panic attacks, and of course that's all tied in with the current situation. If you were in government, Harry, and I don't want to put you on the spot here, but there's a decision to be made now coming the 5th of April, and I wouldn't like to be making it because you're so right, there is a practical side to this and a reality, and then there is the other side where we're all struggling. Would you release anything or, you know, give hope, what you're talking about there, in some easing, even if it's only a small bit of the restrictions?
3: Yeah, I, I think they have to give away something. I think the one, the one that screams out to me as being, you know, in some senses the most farcical one is the 5k limit. We must be one of the very few places in, in Europe uh, that has the 5k limit. So. I think that the trouble with the 5K limit, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's actually concentrating everybody. It's doing the exact opposite of what we want to do. Mm. We want people out, uh, out more in open areas and moving around more in open areas. I think it's very important that we're less likely to get this virus by 25 times being outside versus inside. So everything has to be, in my opinion, pushed outwards. That, so anything that allows us as a people to move outwards and do things outwards, is, 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 it has to, has to be. But I, I think there has to be um, a much clearer, balanced, definite decision-making going on here. You know, I think there's too much, we, this might happen or that might happen or we can't do this because we can't do that. There has to be, look, um, these, are the, these are what we plan to do for the next three months. You know, I know that things will change and mm-hmm. I know that there will be tweaks along the way. But at least if you say to somebody, um, um, if everything goes well, that's what we hope to do at that point in time. But there's too much of, you know, um, pushing it on, pushing it on, pushing it on. And then people get hopeless. Yes. Then people start to feel, oh, what's the point? And that's dangerous because what happens when people get hopeless is to say, well, look, if if we're doomed anyway and if the case is going to pile up anyway and if we're all going to get sick no matter what we do, well, we might as well go out and start living life again. And, of course, that's when the virus really gets going. So it's kind of trying to achieve this this, uh, healthy balance of giving people hope, giving them a kind of a structured plan to get out of this. And I I have to say, um, I know there's a lot of negativity about vaccination and all the rest of it, but I really firmly believe... That you know, within three to four months, we will have seriously dented uh, the population in terms of vaccination. Yes, and that is definitely going to increase our chances of of being able to do open up gradually and do lots and lots of things. So I would say to people, hang on in there. Um, the cavalry is coming, as as Luke O'Neill is, is so commonly says. And in my, I, I really do believe that when we get to the middle of the summer, we will be able to get back out to. The, uh, Start enjoying life in to some different form, and I'm certainly believe by the autumn we will be over the worst of this. So I, I'm throwing in that message of hope there, and I think that message of hope is really really important. It's not a non-realistic message, by the way. It's a message based on what I'm seeing, you know, in terms of how how this vaccination program I think is going to roll out, and uh, and we you know the the other thing is like if we can really protect all those we love, all the lo- all our vulnerable older people, all, all those who are really at risk, the, the risks and, and, and all our medical uh, um, uh, people looking after them and nursing homes and all that if we can actually cover all those and protect all those, a lot of the heat is going to go out of, the, out of this situation. Do yes. you know what I mean? So yeah. hope is coming.
4: And Harry, uh, no doubt about it, the vaccination is the way out of this. And, uh, you know, we hear now people are a little bit concerned because of the AstraZeneca situation, but it has been cleared here again and in the States, laterally as well. You've no qualms there.
3: No, absolutely none. It, it, to be honest, really, uh, the best piece of advice I can give to anybody out there, if you are offered the AstraZeneca vaccine, Grab it, because let's put it like this: the chances of a plot uh, occurring as a result of this vaccine, which I, I still nobody has actually explained to me how that could actually happen, but leaving that aside, I believe the risk is something like one in a million. Uh, your chances of getting seriously ill if you get COVID are in way, way higher, and the. This has been given out to 20 million people. There's been a, a very small uh, number of, of plotting episodes, which are equivalent to what we would get in that population anyway. Uh, so I would say to people, grab it with open arms. And I would, if, 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 if um, my own son has got it in England, and I was cheering when he got it, do you know what I mean? Yes. So uh, anybody out there, if you get it, if, you, if you're offered it, grab it, take it.
4: Now, Harry, I thank you for all those words and they're so important to say today and I feel the positivity coursing through my veins already and I'm sure it is uh, 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 through the veins of our listeners today. Uh, Look, we we, we saw you talking recently about panic attacks and, you know, panic attacks are a reality for so many people. But I wanted to talk to you for a few minutes today about this. This is something, and you are adamant about this again, that is eminently treatable.
3: Absolutely eminently treatable. In fact, uh uh, I spoke to a large number of GPs uh, from the Irish College through a webinar recently. And this was a really, really message, great message of hope that I was getting through, through to them as well. That we, we, these, these, this particular condition of panic attacks is simply an adrenaline rush. It's simply a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is the part that's in charge of our whole stress system. This is the guy that's causing all of our problems at the moment. Because so this is the guy when he gets very irritable, begins to pump out either too much adrenaline as in panic attacks, or too much cortisol when, we say, we're chronically stressed. Uh, and in the case of a, a, a in the case of a panic attack, all the, all we're getting is a five to ten minute burst of adrenaline in our body. And our adrenaline is actually our fear hormone; it's our our do a runner hormone. And I often quote um, the the a uh, time when I met a, a leopard, and this is a true story, Jerry. I, I think I've probably told you before. Uh, where I met a leopard in Africa. And literally at uh, three in the morning, instead of me being a uh, supper for the leopard, my amygdala and my adrenaline saved my life because my amygdala sensed the leopard, got me to freeze, pumped adrenaline, got my whole body ready to run, which is all that an adrenaline rush is. And then when the, uh, uh, when the leopard had gone 10 or 15 yards, allowed me to run back to the house, and 10 or 15 minutes later, everything went back to normal. So all that happens in the panic attack is the first physical symptom uh, is usually a sign of, say, your heart going fast, your stomach or nuts, uh, a sign of excitement or anxiety or stress. And what happens is we assign a danger to that symptom. And those dangers are we're going to get a heart attack, stroke or die, we're going to lose control or people will see me. And uh, the first one being the big one, because everybody is terrified that they're going to stop breathing, they're going to collapse, they're going to die. But the reality is that none of these things are going to happen, because this is simply your amygdala pumping out adrenaline into your body, which it does on regular uh, occurrences throughout our life. So adrenaline is the safest hormone you could have in the body. You can be having adrenaline rushes to you're 110. So what I teach people is a very simple technique, which is, which is now, believe it or not, um, um, I have a video on my website which is seen by a third of a million people and another one in America which is seen by 1.1 million people. And that's showing this very simple technique called flooding, which teaches you to learn to go with the physical symptoms, how to embrace them, and in the process, reset your amygdala, re-change your amygdala for for life. So in other words, you can clear panic attacks, get rid of them out of your life. You don't need medication. You don't need any other form of therapy you don't need breathing exercises all you have to learn is to is to is to plunk where you are when you get an adrenaline rush and learn to go with it and actually reshape your amygdala and i have seen this absolutely transform the lives of countless people and i get contacted from around the world uh, by people thanking me people i've never seen in my life for sharing this uh this whole idea of flooding with them so panic attacks is something we shouldn't we should not be afraid of um, we can clear them quite rapidly uh, if we understand them and have the right techniques. And what a wonderful thing to be able to say, to say all our young people, for example, who, who hugely suffer from this. It's a yeah. massive issue in this age group. And I really believe that we need to be teaching our young people these techniques. Because that's all it is. It's a technique to learn how to deal with an adrenaline rush. That's all that a panic attack is.
4: So a little uncomfortable and acknowledging that, but not dangerous from the words you say to me there. And it's really about confronting it, it and going with the flow, Harry.
3: Going with the flow, absolutely. The, the, the reason that panic attacks cause our problem is we try to stop them. That's when the fun begins. And we stop them by leaving the area, by going to our GP getting tranquilisers, by trying breathing exercises, by all the time um, trying to suppress them. Uh, you know, in other words, our whole idea is, these are so dangerous, they're going to cause me to die, I have to do something to stop them. And the more I try to stop them, the more the amygdala senses my danger, the more he pumps out more adrenaline. So it's like a vicious circle. If I, it's, it's this hilarious situation, Jerry. If I learn to do absolutely nothing and go with them, they'll be gone in five to ten minutes. Mm. If I try to stop them, they can last for up to an hour. And not only by going with them, I also reshape my amygdala, which is a very visceral organ. And I've I've been trying to explain that this is a a really important neuroscientific fact. Um, And some of my colleagues in Oxford are fully behind this kind of approach. Because what actually happens is you reshape your amygdala. You actually use your own mind to reshape the amygdala in your brain. What an extraordinary thought. And And, and of course, this, this has huge impact as well for anybody out there with a phobia. Yes. So you can not only clear your panic attacks, but you can also clear your phobias by using very similar techniques.
4: And again, no medication, Harry. Breathing yeah. techniques, this type of stuff, no.
3: No, it doesn't work in a panic attack. Because it's a bit like saying in the middle of an emergency, I want you to completely calm down and be completely calm. Well, now, you ask anybody in the middle of an emergency, mm. they're absolutely losing it. Yes. And, it, you know, you, you have to accept that that's the, when you get an adrenaline rush, you feel very panicky. So the last thing you want to be doing is trying to kind of uh, to settle your breathing. And there's no reason to do it because it won't it won't actually change anything. It'll make you more panicky because you won't be able to do it. So the better thing to do is to learn to go with the symptoms, not in any way fight them. Uh, and, and it's impossible to explain, uh, Jerry, unless you've suffered from these yeah. and unless you've experienced this, just how effective this is. It's amazingly effective.
4: And it's simple to learn, Harry, and yes. you can carry it with you always then. This doesn't yes. become an issue anymore.
3: Exactly, cuz you'll never worry again about getting them cuz you now know what to do. It's fantastic. And, and once you're not afraid of something any longer, it's no longer a problem.
4: And Harry, you mentioned and I know you've had have these millions of people have seen these video of yours. Can I learn it from just looking at the video or do I need to, to uh, you know, arrange a consultation with someone like yourself? No,
3: no, you can learn. Believe it or not, I've actually people have actually written to me thanking me uh, that they have, just by reading my books and looking at the video, they have actually got rid of their own panic attacks. What an amazing... Uh, mm. So I, I, I'm trying to kind of teach this idea to as large a number of people as I can through teachers, through guidance counselors, through GPs, to, you know... Uh, But I want the general public to to be doing this anyway. They can teach themselves. You know, I I just think we have reached the stage in life where we believe that somebody else must be the expert and somebody else must be able to to do this for us. We have a huge innate resilience reserves uh, and this is a classic and resilience resilient skill. Yeah. And we can all learn it if, 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 if it's a problem in our life. And we can turn our lives completely around. I mean, it's just a wonderful yes. uh, a wonderful message.
4: Isn't this good news for everybody listening today and a real positive? Just before you go, one last thing has crossed my mind, because we're hearing this as well as part of the, the news that's circulating out there. Do you anticipate an avalanche of mental health problems beyond the pandemic?
3: I do actually. I genuinely do think we're going to have a lot of problems, and I'll tell you why. There's a lot of um, hidden depression out there that's not appearing, Jerry. A lot of people are very down, and you know I'm sometimes encountering this situation. But um, I believe there's a huge amount of anxiety about there. People are, people have almost got themselves wound up to such an extent that they're very fearful about going out there. They're very fearful about going back into society. Uh, many are fearful that they'll, that they'll get this virus, pass it on. My, I, I actually believe that when we are, we are out of this, we're going to really struggle for about 12 months to kind of go back to doing the ordinary things again, to give yes. ourselves a hug again, to mm. shake hands with people, to get close to people. Because I think we've been so brainwashed into doing the exact opposite that it's going to be terribly difficult for us to do that. And, and I also believe that there is an enormous amount of grief and loss out there, Jerry, that has not been uh, dealt with. Yes. I mean, so many people. I mean, I heard this morning of um, uh, so, uh, somebody in my my family's wider circle there who's died. And, you know, um, they are simply every 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 funeral is 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 just a tiny number of people. We can't hug each other. We can't embrace each other. We can't. Um, go and um, be with the person in a wake, in their house, you know, Uh, we can't be with them at the church, we can't be with them at the graveside um, and all that loss and all that pain is being stored up, Jerry. and it's going to spill out when this is over. I think people are because we're not mixing with each other, we're not sharing with each other uh, and therefore it's all hidden and I believe it has to come out when this is over. And, and, and I think there will be a lot of difficulties. I think a lot of our young people are struggling at the moment with, with hidden depression, with anxiety, with social anxiety. Uh, and I think, uh, or, you know, as, as, as time goes on and this crisis begins to improve, the cracks will begin to appear. Not to mention the fact, uh, Jerry, that there's a huge number of other you know, conditions yes. out there which have been missed really, or not yeah. missed but have been almost overlooked uh, during this pandemic. Yeah,
4: and that is, that is a, a scenario and I, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you uh, you know, mark our cards, so to speak, on that and, and point to the future. That is uh, coming down the road and will have to be dealt with at the time. But for today, Harry, thank you for your wonderful words. And I say to people again, if you just Google Harry, Barry and panic attacks, you'll see what we've been talking about there and it can be a great help. And of course, all of Harry's books are wonderful. Every one of them in their own right. I always appreciate your time.
3: Not all, Jerry. An absolute pleasure uh, to be with you as always, Gerry. Thank, Thank
4: you indeed. Take care. That's Dr. Harry Barry there speaking to me on Late Lunch this afternoon. First break of the week. Go nowhere. Stay with us on Late Lunch. A week to go, Louise. A week to go. Can you Fair believe it? Here. It's flown along, it has, hasn't it? It really has. Oh, my God. Yes. 40 days and nights for Slav. You know what I'm doing at this stage, folks. Slav Vavro. He's 16. He's been battling cancer since he was 13 and uh, I've decided over the course of the 40 days of the Lenten season to walk at least 40 minutes each day. I'm doing five kilometres at least and I haven't touched a drop of the queer stuff. No, I'm off the alcohol as well. And it's going great, I have to say. And Louise, the generosity of people. It's I think just, it's
2: amazing every day. You're just met with people yeah, handing you loads of money. and
4: The cash that's coming in, the donations to the GoFundMe, well the well wishes, it's just been... It's been incredible and I'm humbled by it. And I know that uh, Slav and Nadia's mum and the family are so grateful to everybody for the support. Just to mention a couple, I want to say a big thank you to Chris Mulroy. Thank you, Chris, for your generosity. It really is appreciated. It's wonderful too. Understand that you were thinking of this young man as well. Chris uh, met me yesterday and um, gave a wonderful donation. Thank you from my heart, Chris. Huey Rooney and Jerry Healy from the Boyne German Shepherd Dog Club. Aren't they great people, Louise? Oh,
2: they're amazing. That's not the first oh, time it's they've, they've helped out. That's not the first out.
4: time they've helped out. Thank you again to you guys for the wonderful donation for Slav as well. I got a lovely little letter I was showing to you, Louise, mm. in the post this morning with a cash donation and from a Cullen listener. We don't have a name. They didn't sign it. They just wanted to say, Thank you. They want to help Slav and they've given me great encouragement. Whoever you are in Cullen, I have it here. And all the monies are going directly uh, to Nadia and Slav. I can promise you that every single euro that we get. And don't forget, GoFundMe.com Oxygen for Slav is where you can donate as well. It's been terrific. Uh,
2: And fair play, Jerry. Like They've been fighting this cancer for three years Mm. and they're exhausted. So every little penny Mm. and every goodwill gesture like yourself is doing just takes that little bit yeah, of pressure off you them.
4: know after 3 years and all that's gone on and the uh, groundbreaking surgeries he's had mm-hmm. abroad which have been so costly the oxygen chamber that has been a huge uh, help to them but cost so much as well in the maintenance of it after 3 years it's 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 easy to understand why it might you know slip from People's minds focus and yeah. that, and that was the aim of this whole thing. I just wanted to raise the focus again. And besides raising the focus, look what's happened is the support, financial support, has been simply outstanding. So, if a week to go, do your best this final week, or us I'll march on for the seven has days. Has it ever
2: been hard? Like, has there have been a few days. Well, I know one of the ah. days you got soaked. <laughs> well, but has yeah. there been many days you've kind of had to push yourself?
4: No. Not one. And what I do is Monday to Friday, you know, I'm out about town. I do me 5k and at the weekends, you know where I go into the countryside Mm. and I do my 5k across the countryside, the fields. I love the outdoors, you know, but I make sure I do that on Saturday and Sunday as well. And I think about Slav as I go along as well and his family. And I think I just think in general and I just hope that, you know, that this good that comes from this will be of some help and I know it is to the family it's of great help it it really is look there's days I suppose uh, I have a routine I go home from work here and I get into the gear and I'm away but uh, I have look. You heard me talking to Paddy the physio last week, haven't me? We? Yeah. <laughs> and they wear and tear on the clock as well. And I'm feeling bits and pieces here and there. The blisters. But nothing is going to stop me. When I start something, you know,
2: mm, you finish.
4: It. It's going to be done, start to finish. That's for sure. And it's only uh, what what burden is it on me? Nothing at all. When I think of Slav and his family, what they've had to uh, go through for the last three years. So thank you again. From my heart, thank you for all the donations, your support, your encouragement, absolutely everything. It's keeping me going too. And on we go on the final seven days of 40 days and nights for Slab. Now, on this day, 20 years ago, the first case of foot and mouth disease in a sheep in North Loud was confirmed. The outbreak that began in the UK almost inevitably arrived here, and we had a national crisis on our hands. Now, editor of the RTE Investigations Unit, then presenter of Loose Talk, here on LMFM Radio, Paul Maguire was in the eye of the storm as the story broke. Paul, welcome back to the show. How you doing,
5: Jerry? Good afternoon.
4: Thanks for joining me again. What do you recall of that day?
5: Well, I suppose, really, as you mentioned there, uh, it wasn't just the day. I mean, it was the lead up to the day. And I think you need to kind of go back maybe mm. a month before that to February 19th, 2001. That was when the first case of foot and mouth disease uh, had been confirmed in Britain. And it was discovered at an abattoir in Essex. And immediately, everybody started to be concerned, um, like, was this going to spread? Uh, The government here put a ban in place on imports from the UK and Northern Ireland of cattle, sheep, pigs. And a whole range of um, animal products as well. And even there was additional security, I remember at the time, assigned um, to police the border to ensure that um, there was compliance of these new regulations that were put in. And then, I suppose, as time kind of rolled on, the concern was growing because the numbers were growing in the UK at the time. So around, maybe around the 21st, 22nd of February, um, there was an 8-kilometre restriction zone was placed around a farm in Northern Ireland after a cow died um, when it was showing symptoms of foot and mouth. And unfortunately, the foot and mouth disease was confirmed in the north um, th- about a week later on the 28th of February. So all the time there was this feeling, Jerry, that it was getting closer mm. and closer and closer, almost inevitable that at some point we were you know, going to have foot and mouth in the Republic. Um, that case in the north then immediately led to a ban on the movement of all susceptible animals within the state, Um, A couple of weeks later, then, around the middle of March, uh, there was news that samples from animals in um, North County Louth had been sent to the Pirbright Labs in the uh, UK for testing. And I think it was around that time that the Department of Agriculture decamped pretty much down to the Ballymascanalan Hotel. That kind of became the headquarters for the Department of um, Agriculture's battle against um, foot and mouth and in those days, just before the 22nd of March, like the whole region was on high alert. I remember it really, really well. In fact, actually, the whole country was holding its breath as the, um, the results were weighted from the Pure Bright Labs. And on the morning then, it was a Thursday morning, I remember it as well as anything. And it's one of those kind of JFK moments that you never, ever forget where you were and what you were doing at the time when uh, the news was announced um, and it was just coming up to 11 o'clock I think it was about five minutes uh, to 11 and I remember Pat O'Shocknessy had um, been down uh, reporting from the Ballymascanlan Hotel and with about I'd say about four or five minutes ago, uh, just before 11, he phoned in to Eamon Doyle, the program controller, to say that foot and mouth was uh, confirmed in the Republic. There was uh, one case of it. And LMFM then was the first to break the news that the first case of foot and mouth in the Irish Republic was actually, as you said, in a flock of sheep on a farm near Jenkinstown in um, County Louth. Within minutes, it had hit the national airwaves at 11 o'clock and within an hour, it was international news, Jerry.
4: Yeah, well, it's appropriate then to listen back. As you say, it was national and international news. And here is an extract from uh, the RTE archives prime time when they actually used a clip uh, with yourself on Loose Talk here on LMFM.
5: Right, it appears the dreaded news has actually come to pass. It has just been confirmed that there are two cases of foot and mouth disease.
3: My daughter told me, she heard it on the newsflash. We were listening to the daily news on the hourly basis. The day dragged on the night. it didn't happen. On 8 o'clock news on the, morning, the following morning, there was still no news, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. At about half past 10, the local radio programme was interrupted with the news that... The result that all farmers dreaded had been confirmed.
4: Yes, there you are, Paul, yourself back then, uh, as you say, at the heart.
5: You are a lot younger then, Jerry.
4: Mm, Well, I'm sure it brings back, as you say, when you said to me a moment ago, a JFK moment, it does context how big the story was. We know, look, uh, in agricultural terms for Ireland, this was potentially an absolute disaster. But the wider implications, Paul?
5: Yeah, but like, just looking at the agriculture uh, impact, I mean, given, you know, County Louth and, um, you know, its association with the agriculture industry, I mean, there was a huge, aggressive slaughter policy that um, was initiated. I think at the end of the day, there was something like up to 13,000 sheep and 3,000 ca- um, cows within the zone in County Loud um, were uh, killed or slaughtered at the time. There was even um, I remember in the last days of March, army marksmen were called in to help in the cull in County Loud. And I remember at one point, Jerry going up to the Coulee Mountains, and whenever you go to the Coulee Mountains, the one thing you always kind of there's lots of heather around the place, but also you see sheep dotted all over the place. And I remember going up, and there wasn't a single lamb or sheep or ewe or anything on the mountainside. It was just absolutely barren of any kind of animal life at all. And I remember speaking to farmers on the program, talking to them, and they were in tears and they were talking about the years of breeding, the DNA that had been passed from one sheep generation to the next, about, you know, I don't mean knowledge of the mountains, but you know what I mean, like the certain kind of knowledge of how to survive on mountains um, in rough terrain like that. And that was all wiped out in just a matter of a couple of days. And as you say then, like there was a much bigger, broader impact as well. There was an operation put in place at the time, it was called Ring Fence. And that was set up to contain the spread. Um, and that had huge impact on social and cultural events, like public playgrounds, football pitches, parks, walks in the forest, they were all closed to the public. And even at one point, and now like when you look at COVID and you look back at the foot melt, at one point there was even a discussion about whether or not mass should be banned and canceled for a number of weeks. Uh, the whole Patrick's Day parade, I remember that was actually deferred until, I think it might've been September or October, The races at Cheltenham, they were cancelled. It literally, you know, just had a huge social and uh, commercial impact on the whole region and, to a greater extent, the whole country as well.
4: And, uh, yes, even the National Ploughing Championships later in the year fell victim because of the fear of people moving from Britain over to a visited lot, come over, of course, for that as well. And there were many other Uh, things. That
5: that is an important point as well. I remember at the time, like, people were actually discouraged from visiting Ireland yep. because of the negative um, publicity and the pleas from both the uh, British and the Irish com- uh, governments in a combined effort asking people not to travel to mm. the island of Ireland.
4: Yeah, tourism was really severely impacted, which it is again now. The one thing that strikes me, Paul, um, about that time, and yeah, as I said, you being at the heart of it, might confirm or deny this, the all-Ireland approach, that we you know, were as one as an island, yet we've seen in this last year of COVID, that hasn't been the case.
5: Well, um I mean I suppose not to get into a discussion about that, um, but I suppose like definitely at the time I remember um during the foot and mouth there was huge cooperation north and south. I mean the departments of agriculture in the north and uh, in the Republic both work really really closely together and we would have had um, people from the Northern Ireland Department of Agriculture on the program talking to us um, as we had uh, people from, um, you know, representatives from the um, Department of Agriculture in the South as well but there certainly was a huge, huge effort um, to ensure uh, that every single possible precaution was taken on, as you say, an all-Ireland basis, on an all island basis to ensure that this didn't um, hang around any longer than was absolutely necessary and that everything that could be done to eradicate it was done um, both north and south of the border.
4: Poignant when you describe the mountains without sheep. Uh, Audrey Jordan's been on to us to say she remembers her father's herd being taken away and that day will stick with her forever and ever. And I'm, that doesn't surprise me one w- one bit. Like, did it dominate, you know, the airwaves as well? Was you, you mentioned the build-up, of course, when it broke in Britain. There was the fear and it did come here eventually. Did it then continue to dominate, you know, your schedule for weeks?
5: Well, it certainly was um, very prominent because... As you know, with news stories, everybody wants to kind of move the story on to something else. And I suppose um, there was a lot of national interest focusing on County Louth and on the Cooley Peninsula. And people were looking to try and find out, you know, whose farm it was, what to what extent the um, herd had been affected there, how many other people were affected, what was the impact on people's lives. And like when you hear, listen to and heard um, farmers Speaking, um, really uh, impacted by this, and you could hear the emotion. I mean, people were breaking down, uh, crying when we were talking to people about um, the herds been taken away, and like there were horrific scenes on the television from the UK, where like you uh, you remember those horrible, horrible scenes where there were hundreds of cattle literally being burned on a kind of a funeral pyre, um, and like people were really nervous and afraid that this was going to end up in in the same... We're going to end up in the same situation here. Thankfully, it didn't come to that. Yes, I suppose it did dominate for a while, but like I think it might have been maybe around maybe 30, 35 days or so later um, it was deemed that uh, the minister at the time, uh, Minister for Agriculture, Joe Walsh at the time, uh, I think may, um, announced that there was a lifting of the trade restic- restrictions which had um, applied... Uh, to County Loud with the exception of the restrictions that were in place um, in a 10-kilometre zone around the farm and around the the, uh, Cooley Peninsula. So kind of once that happened and then I think maybe a few weeks later in May we saw the lifting of the ban on other social activities like fishing, hill walking, all that kind of stuff. So it began to settle down. I mean it's not You know, it differs massively from what we have at the moment with COVID, where that's gone on for over a year. I mean, within probably about six to eight weeks, we would gotten over this and we were certainly well on the way to getting back to some kind of level of normality.
4: Yes, your uh, timing is spot on April and then May. Those dates are... are, uh, absolutely accurate. You mentioned there the JFK, just to come back to it again, in your time here and since, it was one of the real biggies, wasn't it? It really was.
5: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of those standout moments, yeah. um, you know, that will stick with you forever. I mean, like, you know, not to go through them, but there's quite a few of them. But yeah, that definitely, um, I mean, the, the kind of fear that hung over the whole region, um because obviously uh, the lMfM listeners and the lMfM region is right up on the border area, and when you have you know four weeks earlier in the, in the beginning or first or second week of February, you have a suspected and then confirmed outbreak in northern ireland it 's literally right next door to you, and obviously suddenly the focus you know starts to come on um, that particular area, and people were really, really worried. And like I, I, as I said, I will never ever ever forget uh, that moment on that Thursday morning on the twenty second of March when we did confirm the news like it was as I said, I think the dreaded news that we had all feared hearing, um, and that is exactly what it
3: was.
4: Yes, 20 years ago this very day, and he's back with us on LMFM Radio. Before you go, may I congratulate you and your team on the wonderful work you do in the investigations unit and say to you again, keep doing what you're doing.
5: Thanks a million, Jerry, and thanks for all the support, because I know uh, you do support a lot of the programmes that we do. And from our side, that's very, very much appreciated. So thank you too.
4: Thank you, Paul. Lovely to talk to you again on this historic day 20 years on. Paul Maguire there, editor of the RTE Investigations Unit, recalling his memories of this day when foot and mouth disease was confirmed in Ireland 20 years ago. Now, in the aftermath of foot and mouth, as Paul mentioned there, the hills were denuded of any form of sheep life. And LMFM wanted to play its part in the, you know, the uh, reseeding of the, the coulee area with sheep. So, a competition took place here with Seamus on The Breakfast Show uh, to donate a lamb to a farming family impacted by foot and mouth and also the uh, parallel competition was to come up with a name for the lamb now the young lady who won the naming of the lamb was Catherine Byrne from RD but the lamb was actually won by Jane O'Reilly and a little earlier on today I caught up with Jane and she began by Telling me uh, what age she was back then and her family circumstances.
6: Probably about eight or nine that year when I got. It. My father was sheep farmer and my grandfather and all my uncles and have have sheep still. And my brother is very much into it as well. We've got sheep now at the minute and we're halfway through the lambing.
4: What do you remember being an eight nine year old of that particular awful time?
6: I don't remember too much. I remember like not seeing any lambs or that in the fields, because you know you'd be used to seeing the sheep in the fields. It was sad times, like there was no lambs running around in the fields or, or anything like that. But I don't remember too much else about it. I remember the day they went, the day the department took the sheep, but that's about it. I don't really remember much else.
4: That's a a really striking memory of no lambs in the fields. People love Mm. to see the spring lambs. Now, come on, after the the crisis uh, took its course, this lamb that you were presented with, tell me the story of it.
6: Well, I think it was my uncle Francis, my dad's brother, entered my name into the competition. We didn't know anything about it, but I can still remember my mum answering the phone and saying, oh, he's won a lamb. like And um, my brother uh, was like, oh, I'm getting I'm getting it. And then mum got off the phone and she's like, oh, it's actually Jane that's getting it. So I was delighted. And then I remember Seamus and a few others coming to the house and and getting the lamb. I can remember all of that, getting the picture taken. And he also had a big box of Kimberly biscuits. And I think I was more excited about the biscuits than I was about the lamb. <laughs>
4: a real child at the time yes. of course and the, the lamb you you did get the lamb and it was a competition we had here on LMFM you were the winner of the lamb and it was a gesture you know a, yes. a year on from foot and mouth to the farming community and in particular the, the sheep farmers tell us about the lamb what happened to the lamb did you name the lamb what happened from the time you got the lamb
6: there, there was another competition for the name of the lamb and then the other then there was competition for the lamb but some girl from RD, she was around my age, I think she was. She named it Hope for the Future. So she won the competition. So it was named for me, if you know what I mean. The lamb came named, yeah.
4: Whatever happened, the lamb? Did you keep it for long? Oh yeah,
6: oh, yeah, no, we kept her. She died of old age then. She had good lambs for us every year. Yeah. We kept, I think she was about 12, 10, 11. Yeah, 10, 11, 12. She's like, we had her that long, yeah.
4: So she lived a long and happy life?
6: Yeah, a long and happy life, thank God, yeah. We had great crack with her when we were younger. We'd be out running around with them.
4: And you know, it's nice that you did that, because that lamb and adult sheep, of course, was a very special one.
6: Yes, it was, definitely.
4: So there you are, you enjoyed fame on the airwaves for a short time back then.
6: I did, I did Shirley.
4: <laughs> and you're back with us today all these years later Are you still living at home? Have you moved away? What's the story? No,
6: no we're. Well, it's just still living at home so I am and uh, my brother and my two younger sisters are here too I think mum and dad are dying to get rid of us at some stage <laughs>
4: <laughs> Maybe somebody would adopt you like the lamb and uh, yeah. they're not going to rename you but maybe they might adopt you you know what I'm saying yeah. some, well, at some never stage know. you never know <laughs> and, and of course sheep farming still part and parcel Love the family oh
6: yeah absolutely mm. absolutely. And lo-
4: lovely to see them at this time of year what do you do with yourself what do you work at
6: I'm a carer ah, I'm in the community yeah
4: fantastic yeah. it's been a tough year
6: but yes well I, it has been tough it's not it'd be worse now I wouldn't like to be working in the hospital guys like you know they're great the nurses like we haven't had it too bad in the community mm. thankfully where we where I work but uh, like the nurses they're great aren't they like in the hospital the oh, need yeah. Yeah, so brilliant.
4: Yeah well don't be taken away from yourselves either you do a great job and you're on the cold face as well I admire anybody who's on the front line and which you are with your job and all those others as you said in hospital and caring for people as well in homes etc it's been a testing testing year but look please God we're going to emerge now with this uh, vaccination programme in the uh, weeks and months ahead well there you go fame for a day back almost 20 years ago Jane O'Reilly and she's back with us on LMFM radio on late lunch this afternoon thank you for telling SEOE story.
6: It's lovely. Thanks very much, Jerry. It's great chatting to you.
4: Lovely to catch up with her, isn't it? Uh, make the link all these years later. Yes, that's Jane O'Reilly there, who uh, was presented with the Lamb all those years ago. And Catherine Byrne from RD was the young lady who named the Lamb. So if anybody knows Catherine Byrne, who named the Lamb back then in RD, maybe they give us a shout, 1850 or zero eight six eighteen hundred six five eight is the WhatsApp or text number. I really like this story. Did you see that one the weekend? Uh, The um, Fianna Fáil local councillor in County Westmead, in Athlone in County Westmead, Angus O'Rourke. There was a fridge freezer, a fridge uh, dumped, dumped the fridge, sorry, a fridge dumped out in the middle of a neighbourhood. And uh, the offender was known. It was a fridge freezer, it was. And the offender was known. And what did this man do, O'Rourke? He's been a public representative down there for a number of years. He picked up and got hold of the fridge freezer and brought it back and left it on your man's doorstep that dumped it. Now, that's what I like. I like that. I really do. Yes, bring it back and leave it with the person who dumped it and tell them to look after it properly. Yeah, he he may have got the cold shoulder when he arrived, is right, Louise, at the door. That's for sure. But what a move. Honestly, you know, he was identified. They knew who that fridge freezer belonged to. Just dumped it out. And didn't care for anybody or anything and just expected somebody else to take it away. It's back at his doorstep now and that person has to deal with it. Good move, Mr O'Rourke. Well done to you. I like what you did. You know we're always on the, the case with rubbish and dumping here on Late Lunch. Still to come on the show today, Sinead Kelly is with us. Have you a question for Sinead? If you have today, send it to me now. You can WhatsApp or text me 086 1800 658 or you can call in with your query to eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. But taking us a- towards our next week break on Late Lunch it's five and keep on moving you gotta you just gotta keep moving don't you yeah, Sally McDonald was in touch with us to say she has a painting of a mare in a foal, which was the first life that was back on the Cooley Peninsula after the foot and mouth. The picture was painted by our sister and it appeared in the Farmer's Journal at the time and she still has it hanging in our kitchen. Lovely Sally, thanks indeed for getting in touch with us on the show. That's a lovely, lovely memory to have. It's one of our regulars next and we have plenty of questions in for her already. Yes, it's Vetchinade Sinead Kelly. Hello, Sinead. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us again on the show. Let's get straight to business. Listen to this. Hi, Sinead. I have a three-year-old German shepherd recently diagnosed with food and environmental allergies. My vet has recommended hydrolysis food and Apoquel tablets. She has been on the tablets for four weeks now and the hydrolysis food for a week. All well till this morning, covered in red spots and itching again. Is there anything natural I can give her to help her with this? I would appreciate any advice. And P.S., the food allergies are chicken, turkey, rice and potato
0: lots of interesting points there. So, um basically um the, the one of the most common causes of um of, of kind of dogs being itchy, uh, especially if they've kind of itchy feet, itchy face, itchy tummy, um, once you've ruled out parasites, um then one of the most common causes is either a food allergy and or what we call atopy, which basically is an allergy to any inhaled allergen. So by that I mean anything like different pollens, uh, house dust, house dust mite, thing, things like that. So the the, the issue is is that um, unless you go and get intradermal skin testing, which is very difficult to get done in Ireland it's very difficult to find out exactly what your dog is allergic to so the food allergies are less common than the inhalant allergies but the only real way to check if your dog has a food allergy is that what you do is is that you change nothing apart from the diet so allegedly uh, or, or reportedly for at least six weeks you must have your dog eating nothing else other than this hydrolyzed diet and the reason it's hydrolyzed is that by high hydrolyzing the proteins and it's the proteins that are the allergens that trigger the allergic reaction by hydrolyzing the proteins they lose their ability to stimulate an allergic reaction so if you have your dog on uh, like for example Hill ZD would be probably the most common veterinary prescription um, hypoallergenic diet um, then the only way you can say for definite at the end of the 6 week period is if during that period the dog had no other food and no drink other than water and also was not on any uh, any anti-inflammatories or immune suppress So on this occasion, it sounds like the dog is on the ZD and the Apoquel. Now, Apoquel basically will dampen down any immune response by suppressing the immune system. So from that point of view, unless they've already diagnosed a food allergy, it's going to be difficult for the owner to actually know is it food that is the trigger? Um, because if the dog gets better, you're not gonna know, well, was it the diet or was it the Apoquil? Um Now the reason we say six weeks is essentially it takes pretty much four to six weeks for the allergens, the last trace of the allergens to leave the dog's system. So uh, from that point of view, if you're having a breakout after a week of the hypoallergenic diet, I would not be concerned in that it's possible that there is still, you know, a week is too early to see a resolution because, as I say, it can take six weeks of ZD only uh, to rule out or rule in the fact that you've got a food allergy. If you've had, you know, a breakout and you're also on the apple curl, It could just be that um, there has been a particularly high concentration of allergen. Again, it's unlikely in Ireland that we know exactly what the allergic trigger is. So um, the most common allergens are things like house dust and house dust mites, which are pretty much ubiquitous. So it's very difficult to get rid of those unless you're hoovering your house 24-7. And again, coming up to spring and summer, a lot of the allergens are the different pollens. So in the early on of the season, it's a lot of the flower pollens, and later on, it's, it's the tree pollen. So what I would say, dogs that have breakouts, um, I would speak to your vet, because it may be that they require additional immune suppressant therapy, um, often in the way of short bursts of corticosteroids. Um, Apoquil is a great drug, because it doesn't have the side effects of corticosteroids, which are, they make the dog quite thirsty, quite hungry. um, They can have behavioral effects, and long-term they can be not the best thing for for liver and and things like that. Um, But Apoquil is really, really expensive. So if your dog is not insured, or if you Are not rich enough to have a private helicopter, uh, then you're going to find Apoquel is a a very expensive drug to have. Um, So, what I would say to the owner is if you're having a breakout on Apoquel, get back to your vet. uh, They might advise that you can go back on, because initially for the first two weeks of Apoquel, we do the dosing regime twice a day, and then after the two weeks of the initial burst, we go down to once a day maintenance. So, often what helps these dogs is going back on to twice a day treatment. Sometimes they might require a short burst of steroids on top of that, or sometimes you can avoid systemic steroids by using, say, a topical steroid spray. So I would definitely speak to your vet because your vet may, may want to put you on additional medication, or it may be something that you can, if you... Have, have had an idea yourself what's going on in the last few days, you might know yourself. Like for example, was a dog up in the spare room and you were shaking out all the blankets and the bedding and all the cushions, or were you taking down the curtains, the dusty curtains off the off the off the wall? So was it like an exposure to a huge amount of dust? Or again, now we're beginning to get some of the, the you know the, the plants coming out could it be an exposure to pollen of a certain kind. So um, or again something which is often the case a lot of these dogs that are maybe primarily allergic to one thing are also a little bit allergic to lots of other things. So, for example, we always say to any owners of dogs who have any kind of allergy is keep up your monthly flea treatment because most of these dogs, if they're even bitten by one flea, the injection of the flea saliva into the dog is enough to trigger an allergic reaction to that and that will set off the whole cascade again. So, I would just check yourself Do you see any sign of fleas in the dog and I would get on the phone to your vet. You may not even have to Mm -hmm. physically see the vet. I know obviously with with COVID things are a little bit different but vets are seeing animals um, face to face but normally they're, they're trying to have a phone consultation with the client or they're speaking to the client in the car park. So you could maybe even take photographs of, of whatever skin lesions you have and send them into to the vets and then phone up and say, I've sent in these photographs or I've sent in this video, um, can I speak to the vet and take it from there? But, but I, I, would be, I would be suspicious that there has been an acute um, exposure to a lot of a certain allergen or as I say because we're only a week into the ZD it is possible that that he has just not had enough time for the ZD to to, to mean that there's no other food allergen in the environment allergies are so frustrating to deal with because they need an awful lot of patience from the owner
4: Okay, back to your vet and do as Sinead says there thank you Sinead I'm sure that's been really helpful to our listener today here's another one Anna Marie has been on to us she has a, a Tomcat 12 years of age she's moved house recently she doesn't want him to go back to the old house and there is another cat as well in the equation that could be a new cat in the new house but she really wants to know how can she prevent this fellow going back to the old home
0: okay what well, the, the advice is normally to try and get your cat really well bonded to its new territory cats are really really territorial so at the moment if you've just moved into your new house the cat will just regard that as a strange environment. So the advice is normally to keep your cat indoors, if you can, uh, without the cat driving you all insane, is keep the cat in the new house for four to six weeks, at least before you start letting him out. And you would hope that by that point, the cat will have zoned in that this house is my house and I'm gonna come back here. Once you've done your four to six weeks of inside only, you could maybe start going out in the garden with the cat on a harness and lead. It sounds crazy, but a lot of cats, you can train them to a harness and lead might be harder on a 12 year old cat but I would certainly try it on in the house and see can you get them used to it so then you start off their bond to the house then you go out in the garden with the cat on the leaves sit in the garden get them used to this is my garden um, obviously I don't know from the, the story there whether the the new house, the old house is near or far but there are crazy crazy stories of cats travelling hundreds and hundreds yes. of miles to go back to an old house so you're definitely right to, to be cautious but the most important thing is to just do it all very step by step so get the cat bonded to this house. Uh, The other thing is, um, the use of the feline appeasing pheromone is very useful. So again, there's a little thing called a Feliway diffuser, which is a little plug-in, and it produces cat appeasing pheromone, um, and basically, Uh, These are are little hormones that the the cats can smell um, and they are very good at just kind of calming the cat down and making them feel very relaxed and everything because moving house, as for humans, is really stressful for cats as well. So I can't guarantee, even if you do all of that, the cat still won't try and go back, but that's certainly the things that you can do. The other thing I would ask is you say he's a tomcat. I'm presuming he's a neutered male tomcat. If he's not neutered, then the drive for him to go out is going to be even more. So uh, if you haven't had him neutered, definitely get him neutered.
4: Good advice there, Sinead. Now, listen to this one. We have two Jack Russells, Jerry, and at feeding time, they row. Always, I have separate bowls for them, but they really go at each other. It's vicious. What would you need advice?
0: Yeah, you're going to have to feed them in separate rooms. Yeah, so there's no alternative Simple. to that. So I would put them physically in different rooms. And um, if you really want it, like if it's very important to you to feed them in the same room, I suggest you contact an animal behaviourist. But I would say the problem, the food-based aggression, is is quite a common aggression, and it can be quite difficult to get over if the aggression is directed at the other dog. Because if we look back at where it's coming from, it's perfectly normal for dogs. If you look back at dogs in the wild, whether they be jackals or hyenas or wolves or you know, food is the most important asset. So even if these two dogs are the best pals or siblings or have lived together for years, when the food appears, it is a very prized resource and they are going to be terrified the other one is going to get their food. So the aggression, much as we are going to hugely dislike it and we're going to be scared by it and absolutely it can cause horrendous problems. Uh, like we see so many dog bites in practice and, and sometimes they can be fatal. I, I just wouldn't take any risk with them. I would just feed them in separate rooms. And um, When you're getting the food ready, I would get them in separate rooms as well because that anxiety, that hyped up uh, fever pitch, you know, hysteria they're going to have is going to start from when you go to get the food ready when they can smell it. Dogs are so clever at picking up visual cues off us and they will know, oh that's more is going to get the food now. Right, I'd better tell himself to get away from me because I want my food um, so I certainly think you need to just avoid the risk and just separate them if you're determined to try and feed them at the same time in the same place I would contact a behaviourist but I, I think your best bet is just to keep them very very separate
4: yes yeah, split them up and uh, you will see the benefit hopefully yeah, and it's soon it's totally normal
0: like I yeah. a totally normal mm. reaction you mm. know um, we maybe don't understand and we think god why are they being so nasty to each other but it just makes total sense you know
4: oh tell you I understand it take a chip off my plate yeah, and you're exactly, in trouble exactly. I can tell you, for sure. Anyway, here's your next one. Hi, Jerry. Could you ask Sinead, why would our terrier keep eating his front paws? I've checked them thoroughly. There's nothing there that I can see between his nails or in the pads. What's
6: going on?
0: OK, then it kind of feeds back to our first story with the German Shepherd. So there's kind of two main reasons for, for, for biting or chewing or licking feet. One is a kind of behavioral obsessive thing, which some dogs do, particularly as a displacement activity, if they're a bit stressed or if they're a bit bored. Um, and then the other is, is is what we call atopy or allergic inhalant dermatitis, or perhaps food allergies. So what I would do, um, normally the B and the food allergies start kind of between the ages of about one and three. And certain breeds are predisposed so the small breeds are more predisposed. Um, so again, first of all, I would examine your dog from top to toe, check, do you see any signs of fleas? Do you see, you, you, the owner says they haven't seen any irritation or inflammation in between the toes. That's often very common. So sometimes we have dogs that are literally, you know, chewing themselves, you know, really intensely. But actually when you look, you don't see any redness, any inflammation, and you're kind of going, what, what is this? Um, essentially, the reason for a sort of rationale is that if you are atopic, um, your immune system reacts such that the, the immune complexes, so the binding of the antibody and the antigen, which could be, say, pollen or house dust, they settle out um, at the feet, most commonly. Also, uh, the ears, the face, the tummy, the groin, the armpits. And so they are the areas that are particularly, particularly itchy. So whenever people say to the vet, my dog has really itchy feet, the the most common thing is is going to be an allergic condition. The next thing I would say is behavioral. And then the third thing that you want to get ruled out is occasionally some of the parasitic uh, mange mites can cause itchy feet. Normally, though, they would have typical lesions you'd have you know crusting or scaling or, or or things like that so again i would i would have a chat with your vet and you're probably going to want to get your your you know you are going to want to get your dog examined unless it's something that's just come up say something stressful has happened in the house as a new person a new baby and it might just be it's a behavioral issue so often i find with people that If we suspect it's allergic and we do all the treatments for allergies and all the methods and we're still going to do it, but they're still doing the chewing and the the licking, um, then you're looking more at a behavioral modification kind of thing. But I, I would definitely go down the route of speaking to your vet and ruling out allergic skin disease first of all.
4: Sinead, as usual, you've been fantastic. I have more questions, but I'll hold them over till the next time that you're with us. I have them here and also if you send us in a question, I'll hold them for Sinead uh, for the next time. But time has just beaten us today. Thank you so much. Your advice is invaluable and we appreciate it. And our listeners do too. Until the next time, Sinead,
0: thanks a lot. You're very welcome. Talk to you soon. Bye, yourself. Bye-bye.
4: That's Sinead Kelly there. The most brilliant person. Honestly, she, she could just pick up anything and uh, give you the answer to it off the cuff. I have more questions. I will hold them as I said. Late lunch. L M F M radio. Still to come on today's show. My artist of the week. I didn't give you a clue. Who do you think it is? His middle name is Andrew. Oh, that's that's not good enough, is it? Really, the yeah, sure, She could be thinking about anything. He is a national treasure. He is a national treasure. His mother's from Navin in County Mead. Can you, uh, can you get it yet? A national treasure. Mother from Navin, middle name Andrew. Who's my artist of the week, if you care to guess? 086 1800 658. WhatsApp or text me. Back in a moment. Is he still alive, someone says. Yes, he is still alive. It's not Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> Art, did, did you ever, did Pierce Brosnan ever sing, Louise? You've been a Navin woman. Don't think so. No, I don't think so. I, don't think I don't even re-
2: can't even remember him singing any film. I films. don't
4: think uh, Pierce does My artist of the week, it's a musician or a singer, or, you know, it's somebody in, in that game we're talking about. Yes, he's still alive and he was born on the 7th of May. He's a national treasure... He's going strong, he's still alive. Who's me, artist of the week? Go on, have a crack at a guest there. Oh eight six eighteen hundred six five eight WhatsApp or text me. Couple of late questions come in there. Uh, Bridge wanted to know what my dog to pee and poo in the one area of the garden. I wish you luck, Bridge.
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> if Michael has anything to go by, he'd pee in your face. <sighs> <laughs> Honest to you, that messy fella, he would. He'd do it and uh, put anything in anywhere. But I pick it up. You know, Louise, you have a dog yeah. yourself. Like when they do it, just pick it up. You know what I mean? I think that's it, Bridge. To confine them to an area, But well, all you'll have to do is really put them out into an area and fence them in and they'll do it there then. But generally they move about. But I just pick them up every single day that they're there, which you should do if you're out walking as well. <laughs> and another one came in there to say uh, they have to rehome pet rabbits uh, my, the granddaughter is allergic to the pet rabbits now. Aww. What should they do? Oh, that's sad, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, the best thing to do is how would you rehome the rabbits? Get anyone anyone out there would Take like rabbit. rabbits? Take rabbits. Perhaps we can help you. Anyone interested in taking pet rabbits that have to be rehomed because of an allergy? If you have an interest in that, we could possibly put you in touch with this listener as well. The other way to do it is what. Would a pet shop take them back? I don't know. Um, you know how would you put them up somewhere and advertise them? You might be wary doing that, wouldn't yeah, you? I don't if you know, didn't know where they were going, I understand that as well. I'm sorry you have to rehome. There were just a couple of little additions there. Did you ever have a, a pet rabbit yourself? Never Louise? had Never. a
2: pet rabbit. Only dogs. Don't even think I had a goldfish.
4: I, I... I oh, jeez, I had everything under the sun. I had goldfish, mice. I've told you about the mice before. Yeah. I was a great man for the pet mice. And I had pet rabbits. I got white rabbits one year. Uh, and I had them for a number of years. They were devils to keep. They got snuffles. They were hard to keep alive, the rabbits. You know, they really were. Remember but I my had...
2: auntie, Rosie, used to breed rabbits for a time. Right. And they were... Like, she. Dozens of them, her son yeah, Thomas, yeah. and they were tiny. Like oh, when they're born, they're really...
4: They'll breed like rabbits, that's yeah. for sure. There's no doubt if you, if you, if you have them. But, uh, yeah, I've had a few and I've always had dogs, as you know, as well. and uh, Never had a cat. No. Never had a cat in my life. No. You have a cat. We're just
2: after getting a cat. I was never you a, cat a cat person. You have a cat and a dog. Now I Good have a
4: Good luck cat. to you. Good luck to you. Uh, I've never had a cat. I just never have in our lifetime. Never, ever. But lots Why? of dogs, are sure. sure. Uh, I suppose to just... We're never on the radar. See, I was reared with dogs with my dad. You know what I mean? So I was reared with the dogs. And uh, I, I think that we've always been on the canine end of things. I've just never had a cat. They're simple as that. Nothing against them or anything like that. People love their feline friends, don't they? My a sister case has a cat and she loves the cat. And has she a dog? No.
2: Is it a case for some people are either cat Love yeah, no there's that's the
4: thing. My sister had cats and yet well, you know was rare in the same environment as myself. What is it? Is it is it a gender thing? Is it is it male, female? I don't know. Anyway, uh they're guessing, they're guessing there. Anyone get it right yet? John Sheehan, no, it's not John Sheehan. Mm yeah oh was Chris we're wrong look at we're that we're wrong completely. we're wrong we're wrong we're wrong we're wrong we put up our hands when we're wrong yeah. on late lunch Pierce Brosnan sang in Mamma Mia never <laughs> seen the film <laughs> Jerome O'Brien you're right don't tell him don't say it yet Jerome <laughs> O'Brien you got it yeah you got my artist of the week Jerome I'm looking forward to playing his songs all week that's the first one I've seen coming in there by text that's spahan Uh oh no there's another one there. It's WhatsApp as well has it as well yes um, we're, there's somebody else there hasn't it? Um, um, my artist of the week you'll enjoy him I promise you
2: apparently Jerry this your artist of the week his mum and her best friend had the same name and they married two best friends and oh. according to my dad they were fabulous dancers
4: oh you know a lot, an awful lot about them mm, they you had perhaps. a little
2: saying a little poem getting you know about yeah these two women. I won't mention the name in case it gives away oh, the no, artist. Don't
4: give it away. Don't give it away. Anyway, you perhaps you know more about the artist of the week than I, than I know myself.
2: No, yeah, I don't, don't think so. Just the stories about the mum. What's
4: not... that story about the postcard uh, that went to the Drogheda woman in the United States?
2: Oh, I saw that that uh, over in the papers over the yeah. weekend. Seemingly, there is a Drogheda lady in New York. Yep, and she got a postcard. <laughs> Was it for Saint Patrick's Day? <laughs> yes, and. She got it in New York, but it was earmarked <laughs> for a lady in Kerry or Cork or somewhere, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So how that it is the story. Yeah. How ended did it, up in uh, America? Yeah,
4: nobody knows. It's one of those things. It's one of those miraculous things. She redirected things. it. She did. Fair use to her. But it went there and nobody has a clue how it got there, but it did. A draw a woman got this card for St. Patrick's Day and... <laughs> It was addressed. <laughs> it was addressed actually to Tomb in County Galway, and what she did was she sent it on. Did they get it? I wonder if they get it here on the Irish side. It's probably too too soon, is it? Maybe they did. Maybe I know
2: my uh, my husband. They used to send a postcard to their uncle, and they mm. just wrote his first name, County Donegal, Ireland, and he got it. Always got it. There you go. From all over the world.
4: You can be lucky or unlucky. Sure, weren't we talking early in the year about all the cards for Christmas and everything that were still hanging yeah. out there in the world and we heard from another lady there recently that it had just arrived. Christy Dignam, is it Christy Dignam? It's not Christy Dignam, but you're getting warm. You're getting much warmer there. You're not far away. You sort of have it Anyway, my Artist of the Week coming up after news, sport and weather at three and it's National Tree Week this week. Ina Neil is joining us on Late Lunch. See, Professor Sam McConkie uh, saying in the last while that uh, the majority of the country won't be vaccinated until September. It was supposed to be June, now it's September, he's saying there. I don't mean to bring you bad news, but that's just another uh, little thing. That's, well, that's a big thing, isn't it, really? That'll certainly... Uh It'll certainly annoy a lot of people, an awful lot of people, to be honest with you. Anyway, he's a good fella, Sam, I have to say. Um, well done to Mary Mooney and Marion Kelly. Yes, you got my Artist of the Week right, bro. Shield, that's a one. I must... Let's consider Brush some week. Great fellow, Brush Shields. Somebody answered Brush Shields there. Not Brush, but not far away either. Anyway, my artist of the week this week is Christopher Andrew Moore. He was born on the 7th of May, 1945. He's 75 and going strong. Now in his seventh decade, writing, playing, singing, and of course performing up until the outbreak of COVID last year. He's originally from Newbridge in County, Kildare. Where after school he became a bank official Christie a bank official However during that protracted bank strike in 1966 It went on for nearly three months Christie decided I'm out of here. He moved to England and never returned to his day job. Lucky Christie. He did labouring work on the building sites in the UK and began gigging in Irish pubs and clubs, which saw his profile in the UK really grow. His first album was called Paddy on the Road. It was released in 1969 and it's a real rarity. Now, if you have that, you have something special. A couple of years later, 71, he recorded a second album called Prosperous, which was made in the town of the same name and featuring Andy Irvine, Limo Gofflin and Donal Lunny, who along with Christy, yes, they became Planxty. Prosperous was a traditional album with some of Moore's own early compositions included. Today, I'm thinking here, as I sit here, of Christie in England in the 60s, perhaps yearning for home and playing this song. He learned from Native American Indian Floyd Westerman. Yeah, Quiet Desperation, I absolutely love that song My soul is in the mountains, my heart is in the land Beautiful, beautiful Christy Moore song Yes, the Christy Moore song continues With more about Christy and another classic ballad From the man himself tomorrow afternoon At this time on Late Lunch It's National Tree Week, yes it is And the woman who knows all about trees and much more besides Is joining me next, yes stay with us Aina Nilauna is here in a moment. It's National Tree Week and joining me now is the President of the Tree Council of Ireland, the brilliant Aina Leona. Hello again, Aina.
1: Hello, Jellie. How are you doing? Are you well? I'm really
4: good, Aina. Big question to start. Weren't our ancestors so wise when you see the wonderful array of trees that they planted in their day for us? Have we lost that vision in the world and in Ireland today?
1: No, we haven't. Good! Oh, I mean... What, what, what ancestors are you speaking of?
4: Well, you're talking about when you see the great planting that went on by the, say, in British times here and that, and you see some wonderful examples of trees that are, you know, decades and maybe hundreds of years old. Are we doing the same? What I'm trying to get at... Well,
1: when uh, we got our independence, then, yeah. I'll let you know, in 1921, we had 2.5% of the country covered in trees. OK. And now we have 11%. Good so stuff! Obviously
4: we're doing better. We've done something bloody right in the country. I'm now happy.
1: There you go there. So you know, it wasn't always better (laughs) on the There you go there indeed. And it's National Tree Week and we have National Tree Week every year in March for the last thirty years. And it's run by the Tree Council of Ireland and I think we have planted about a quarter of a million trees in three weeks over those 30 years so we're doing something right anyway yeah
4: yeah and it's important the reason i say it ain't is that i i'm aware where i live here of the destruction of the environment there are lots of houses being built in this northern environs of the drawdown area lovely areas i used to go walking and i see ditches and trees just being flattened all over the place
1: yeah, that's not fair. I mean sometimes the councils ask you to have fight lines coming out of your date and then people take it upon themselves to remove the hedges, ditches, trees, every sort of mm. thing. But in fact, um the Queenshire people did a survey the other day and they say that something like eighty eight percent or nine out of ten Irish adults like trees. So the other twelve percent must live up beside you then <laughs> I love
4: it. Well, bad scramps to them anyway, and we are here today to actually encourage people to go planting. But on a serious note, you know when housing developments happen, is there enough, you know, thought put into green space trees?
1: Well, there is plenty of thought put into it, and it's part of the procedure that the planners insist on for the developers to put in, and they have to put in money. As a deposit, that they'll do it. But sometimes they'd rather lose the deposit than actually do it at the end. So yeah. sometimes they don't always come good on it. But, um, Peggy Town people and local committees and things like that uh, take up the slack. And in fact, in National Tree Week, we get 15,000 trees from Quilcha, who are our sponsors, for giving out to people to plant. In community areas and things like this, so even this year, even though we have COVID and there won't be big public events, even this year, fifteen thousand trees are going to be planted this week by the different local authorities. Right. So that's, that's that's.
4: I'm encouraged, that's right. and and that is yeah. fantastic yeah. to hear. It really is. Uh, well, I tell you a little story. I bought two trees myself for the weekend, and. I bought two apple trees and I'll tell you why I bought them. I had many moons ago in another house (laughs) in another house I lived in I had a beautiful apple tree, a Cox's orange pippin' and I've had different ones since, but I hadn't seen them. Didn't I just by chance happen into a local gardening centre and there they were and I bought two of them. So I'm gonna put in those two trees this week. That's my contribution.
1: That's excellent. And of course apple trees are great because Ah, you get flowers on them and the flowers are there for the insects who can use the pollen and the nectar so not only are you feeding yourself with apples mm-hmm. but you're feeding the pollinators as well this year because we have we have um, Covid we have um, a huge amount of stuff online if people are interested yes. in trees on the tree council website I mean we're doing a series of free web- webinars in other words talks about trees trees in springtime woodland trees heritage trees different how to plant a tree every day for a week on that starting from tomorrow. So if you're interested in any of that, you just log on. We have a competition. You're going to take a photograph of your favourite tree and send it in to us. And if you have a little piece about it to say why it's your favourite tree, it doesn't have to be an Asian tree, it's just something that you really love and think is great. And there's prize monies and competition. Great. Results will be out at the end of next week on that. So like we're still going ahead, even at yes. these times. And of course, more people are out and about anyway in their 5Ks and they really do appreciate how important it is to have a nice environment, more so than any other year, in fact. So that encourages people to... um do things with their environment. Yes, to yes. Keep it, to keep it better, and for you no, know, for other creatures as uh, well. And
4: I just want to remind listeners: treecouncil.ie. It's simple as that. That's the website: treecouncil.ie. And Anne is on it, tomorrow it. morning at half eleven. You're on trees in springtime. You're talking about yes, at right, eleven thirty tomorrow. But
1: I'm doing this. I'm going to tell us how to identify trees before they get the leaves. Yes, and just can identify a tree with leaves on it. But <laughs> well, it's the it's the honors class who can look at <laughs> the uh, look at the catkins, or whatever and say what tree that is, because people like to put names on. Yes, you know you get more pleasure out of something if you can actually say what say a name of it, indeed. And that always encourages people to go and look and see what's happening. Because yes. you don't have to wait till the summer time. Things are happening in nature all the time. And You'll a- have a
4: PhD with Ana tomorrow in terms of a spring <laughs> identification when you tune into to this webinar at 11.30. But look, at one thing I was to say to you, if you were saying to somebody today in terms of planting trees, and I know you've mentioned this to me, to me before, uh, native Irish deciduous trees?
1: Well, the, well, we have we have twenty eight native island trees. I mean, they're not all deciduous. Mm. I mean, holly is, holly is evergreen. Yes, beautiful yeah, is evergreen. But those ones have have a huge amount of creepy crawlies associated with them. I mean, for example, the oak tree has had two hundred and eighty seven different types of insects who find somewhere to live there or something to eat. Never to speak of whatever birds might be feeding on those or squirrels eating the acorns or whatever else so the native, the native trees that came by themselves after the ice age are better for biodiversity but indeed Gerry any tree, any tree is worth yeah. planting because the tree by photosynthesis takes carbon dioxide out of the air, it stores the carbon as timber and it gives off the oxygen for us to breathe so even if it's a spruce tree or a pine tree or any kind of a tree it will do this and in fact the evergreen ones do it all year round So any tree is good native Irish deciduous trees I suppose are in the in the top echelons if you like if you yes. like to plant those. Yeah. But I mean apple trees are good. You can plant pear trees, you can plant, I mean we have a whole list list of things that you can plant and they're not all necessarily native ones yeah. It's the right tree in the right place
6: is what you want really.
4: Okay and as we said before don't mention the uh, L word, Leylande. Don't even mention it I shouldn't even have said it today. Anyway before you finish, quickly for Kathleen she loves you and she's been on here to say my son bought me a little oak tree in a pot for mother's day how near to the house should i plant it i have a large garden surrounded by a hawthorn hedge and several mature trees
1: well now it doesn't matter how near to the house she plants it it'll be 80 or 90 years before it grows very large (laughs) in the sense of being 60 foot tall yes unless it's trying to be around for 90 years but (laughs) at the same time obviously you wouldn't want to plant it too near to the house not be that would be silly so i suppose maybe or 10, 15, 20 meters away at least, you know? Yes. So that if she has that much space around the edge of her garden or in the hedge or somewhere like that would be good. I and mean, we don't put it in the front lawn unless you have a mansion the size of Ormondson or something, you know, you don't want to be
3: doing that.
4: <laughs> Anyway, it's a wonderful week. I'm with you all the way, reminding everybody again. You can join Ana tomorrow at eleven thirty. Get in there and register now, treecouncil.ie, and do get involved in this week. It's a wonderful thing to do, and they're so important to our environments and life on this planet. Get planting wherever you can. Ana, talk to you again soon.
1: Good luck, Jerry. Thanks
4: a million. Take bye care bye, yourself. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's Aina e there, President of the Tree Council of Ireland. Again, reminding you it is treecouncil.ie. That's a lot this Monday on late lunch tomorrow. Paul Mine is back. Will we ever get rid of him? <laughs> When we get rid of Minor, you know, happy days. God, he might enjoy me now tomorrow because I said that. Deirdre Hines is with us. She's going to tell us how she unwinds. And Sean Collins reflects on Ireland 100 years ago in 1921. Have a nice evening. God bless you. See you tomorrow and have one.
3: The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors, Drahadudundok and Cavan. Our service departments are open with all HSC and government guidelines in place to keep you and our staff safe. Sales are click and deliver only through our website. BlackstoneMotors.ie Stay safe from Blackstone Motors.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze...